hear that? It's a sound of a feedback loop, like when a microphone picks up its own signal from a speaker. I like to picture the sound as this minuscule plane that's shooting through the microphone, into the cable, out the speaker, and then swishing back into the mic again so quickly that you can't follow its circle like Superman flying around the earth until it moves backwards. I'm playing it because there's a bit of a feedback loop going on here in episode 9 of Plugs Play Pedagogy, podcasting with students. I mean, here I am making a podcast about podcasting in the classroom. If I podcasted about students podcasting about podcasting, I think the space-time continuum might collapse or something. Okay, so I'll explore podcast pedagogy in three parts in this episode. First, I'll share an interview I conducted with Faith Kurtaika about a podcast assignment she conducted with her students. Then, in part two, I'll share a clip from one of the most recent and satisfyingly complex pieces on podcasting in the rhetoric and composition field by Jennifer L. Bowie. Then we'll finish up in part three with a segment from Ryan Truman, who reviews some of the best scholarship on podcasting and writing, including Bowie's work. So let's hop into it, shall we? We'll start with part one, podcasting social justice. Faith Kurtaika is assistant professor of English at Creighton University. She tweets at FM Kurtaika, that's F-M-K-U-R-T-Y-K-A. So she's one of those people who I see online a lot, but I didn't really know until we spoke about the work that her students do, which is a shame because she's smart and cool and her students do smart and cool work. So let's listen to our interview first, and then I'll play a few minutes of her students' work after that. Uh, my name is Faith Kurtaika. I am an assistant professor of English at Creighton University in Omaha, Nebraska. Um, I am here because I recently did a podcasting assignment with my students. Um, something that's unique about the students that I did this assignment with is they are part of what's called the Cortina community. Cortina is a living learning community at Creighton focused on social justice issues. So the students all live together in a community. They do about five hours of service a week, and they also participate in community information times all related to the topic of social justice. So that's something it's a so it was a composition course for students in that community. And it's, so it's so interesting that, that this is a group of students who already have this this dedication to social justice issues. Mm-hmm. Right. That's that's part of what's brought them together. And from looking at the list of the podcasts that your students did, it sounds like a lot of them were really focused on on that, on social justice. Yeah, yeah, that was kind of the only requirement that I gave them that I wanted them to be able to talk about some kind of social justice issue that was personally important to them. Uh, We on my campus, we've been looking for ways to sort of publicize the Cortina community. People don't really know a lot about it. We wanted to recruit some new students into it. We wanted to kind of build the popularity. It's always been a sophomore program. and We're trying to integrate more freshmen into it. So part of the reason I wanted to do the podcast is so people could hear from Cortina students and hear the kind of work that actually goes on in the living learning community. Um, kind of from the students themselves and hear about some of the issues that they were talking about. And obviously to move the things they were learning about in Cortina outside of the classroom. Well, and it seems like a podcast is a natural sort of place for that kind of a goal. You said people could, could hear from them. And, and I know mm-hmm. we use that kind of uh, metaphorically a lot, right? Like, oh, if, student, if, if everyone out, outside could read the writing of those students or see their faces, but, but there's something I think about about actually hearing from them, right? actually yeah. hearing their voices. And, yeah. and it, it is it is personal. It is it is inviting. 
Right. And a podcast gives them a, a chance to sort of still be themselves, like as opposed to an, a piece of academic writing where you feel like you might have to put on like this authorial scholarly voice, like, and they're so funny and they have such cool voices to listen to that it, it makes it much more interesting than if you were just reading something that they wrote, I think. Yeah. So, so you said uh, one of the things you told them was it had to do with social justice mm-hmm. in some way. What, what else did you tell them? What kind of guidance did you say in the yeah so they had to i told them 10 to 15 minutes because i figured that would be about as long as they would sort of feel comfortable talking for uh they had to interview someone else and it could be anyone else say some people picked someone on campus who had some kind of expertise in their area sometimes they just picked friends some of them picked people who lived on their floor um they had to include at least two but not more than four scholarly sources so we did some library research to cover that as well um and then all the other sources were up to them i told them that uh, I had them listen to some sample podcasts because I wanted them to get a sense of the sort of conversational tone of a podcast that it's not just reading from a script. Um, I told them they did not have to have a script, but they did have to have some sort of bullet points or a kind of a basic outline of what they wanted to talk about. And I wanted them to know that it should be sort of dynamic and fun to listen to. Obviously, it would be boring if you just listen to a lecture. They know very well how boring lectures can be. Uh, so I talked to them about kind of the interplay and the dynamic. That's why I did it as a partner activity. Um, that I wanted them to sort of chat back and forth to each other. Um, and this the sample one that I brought for you is they did a really good job of that. You can sort of tell the dynamic between the students that they're kind of having fun, just sort of chatting with each other, talking about something that they care about. Um, and I just, I mean, it's sort of silly and goofy, but I just love like how you can sort of hear their personalities come through, even though it's just an audio and how you can, they just have this kind of nice ownership over the topic, which is, uh, which is wage inequality. And they actually interviewed, um, a senior student who is also a part of the living learning community. And I also like the, again, they have this kind of uh, cool banter with her that I think is really fun to listen to. And and I think, how do you say this? I think cool banter is, is uh, maybe under theorized or undervalued, you know, <laughs> like, especially in academic writing, right? Seriously. <laughs> like those, those, those things that make us, not just care about the topic, but care about the person, make, make us attach and say, oh, I want to hear more from this person, from this voice. And it's not just a personal thing. It's also, a, I want to hear more of their ideas. It all, it all kind of blends together into. Yeah. 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 And I, I even had some of the students say, like, they would look at the list of who all did what podcast. They'd be like, oh, I want to listen to his. Oh, I want to listen to hers because they knew that person. And they're like, oh, they're going to be funny and they're going to be really interesting to listen to, which Again, that was kind of part of my goal is like create some kind of product, some kind of uh, research-based product that students would be excited about and would want to listen to. Right. And it, I was thinking of asking earlier, and I didn't get around to it, if if you had any, uh, if you had to defend yourself at all. <laughs> I, I know sometimes I, I feel a little like I have to say, okay, no, it's really, really okay for me to do this sound and this video work mm-hmm. in my, my first year comp classes. I, I swear it's all the same. But what you just said seemed like a perfect defense of that. I mean, here, here they are really writing for an actual real audience and really creating content that, that is delivered in a way to be effective. And that's exactly what we talk about in rhetoric. Yeah. yeah. And I, I think that part of it was actually harder because the easier thing to do is to write the research paper that you've done 10 times before. It's much harder to talk to a stranger, to talk to an, a human being, um, to interview someone, to be funny and interesting. And then also part of the challenge was they had to take these scholarly sources and incorporate them into the podcast, which is also really hard to do, right? It's hard to be like, well, according to the journal of such and such, just randomly out of nowhere. So I think it was actually, it required a more creative, interesting use of sources. 
um, and incorporating some of the technology stuff to also just um, communicate in a way that that we communicate all the time in our in our contemporary culture. So I and think again, and I think the students found it much harder than a regular research paper as well. I'm sure. Yeah. And, and, and I feel like that genre of, of kind of the news story that summarizes a new research is, is pretty mm-hmm. common. You know, you, you'll hear it. You hear it on NPR all the time. You read it in papers all the time or USA Today is always, doing, you know, hey, a, a new study on this has come out. And it kind of yeah. makes you say, I want to kind of look up the original. But it's, it seems like we're, we're kind of saying to students, hey, one, you are smart enough to read the original. Like you don't just always have to get the, the summary. But <laughs> But two, you can also do some of that, that contextualizing for people. You can help them out. Yeah. yeah, no, that's a great way of thinking about it. Or your opinion on it also matters and is interesting. Mm-hmm. And I want to hear your commentary and um, integrated with kind of your experience and sort of your take on it. Yeah, that's much better than just being like, well, you can use I in your paper or tell, tell us your opinion at the end or something like that. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, I know when... Uh, I first used and what, the first time I did an audio uh, kind of editing assignment in a class was a long time ago, and and I remember calling it a podcast, even though the students only made one totally separate audio file. I I, I didn't have the phrase kind of audio essay yet. I didn't know what else to say, so I said, <laughs> "Oh, it's it's audio, so it's podcast." And I wasn't listening to any podcast then. I just kind of was trying to be hip. Um, but what's <laughs> what's cool about your students' work is that it actually is a podcast, right? Like, yeah, it's actually, it started out as a radio show. So it started out as um, they were broadcast on Blue Jay Radio, which is Creighton's student-run radio station, uh, broadcast online. Um, and so they they released them twice a week, uh, Tuesdays and Thursdays mornings, Tuesday and Thursday mornings throughout the spring semester. Um, but then we also put them on SoundCloud and we got a little bit of money from Residence Life. Shout out to Residence Life. Thank you for giving us some money uh, so that we could pay for the SoundCloud. And they've already been listened to like almost 200 times. And the students have told me that they listened to them. Um, one of the students' moms listened to them and she loved them. Like it's, it, they've gotten some good publicity. And uh, it's also, like I said, good publicity for the program um, to stimulate some discussion about social justice issues on campus. So yeah, they've, they've had a wide reach so far. It's exciting. And, and yeah. was it, is it on iTunes too? Did I even see that? Yes, you can get them from iTunes based on the SoundCloud. So I got to figure out the, the SoundCloud how hosting costs a little bit of money, but you can download them on iTunes or I think Google play as well from there. So, so yeah, it's a good way to make them sort of publicly available. Yeah. And I think, I think thinking of distribution and that technical side is sometimes um, something I don't always spend as much time in class talking about as I think maybe Mm -hmm. I should kind of that idea of we're, we're not just, we're not just creating content that is just for class and then forever, but but part of being a, a rhetor in the 21st century is thinking about how it's going to be distributed, how, how it's going to be digitally delivered. And that, that matters. Yeah. Yeah. And that's what I liked about the student run radio station is that it felt like a way to make it public that was concrete, but also they sort of knew the people who would be listening to it, that it didn't just feel like, well, we're going to put it online. It's like, no, this, this has a real audience and there's real people out there who want to listen to it. And our student radio station was super excited about it. A lot of the kinds of programming they do is sort of more, um, you know, students playing like their favorite songs and things like that. So they were really excited about incorporating some of the academic components of that as well. They've been a, a really great ally for us. That's cool. Yeah. And so did the students like go to a, a radio studio? Like how, how do they actually record this? Well, part of my, when I was thinking about the project, because it is freshman, I didn't want it to be a kind of, like you said, like too much of like a 
a technological project. I still wanted it to be like a research, writing, critical thinking, expressing yourself kind of project because it is still a composition class. Sure. Uh, so we didn't get too much into the technical side of it. They just um, did the sound all on their computers. Um, I had a student assistant last semester who uh, learned Audacity and taught them all Audacity and taught them how to use it. And we didn't have too many technical problems. It was actually really kind of a miracle in that sense. But I think... Um, but yeah, I mean, they just record on the computers. I think in the future, I'd like to do microphones or something a little bit fancier. But I was a little bit afraid to make it too like a, too much about the technology because I wanted it mm-hmm. to be about the writing and about the speaking your mind and about the talking about an issue you care about. So for me, that was like part of the reason I didn't want to make them buy microphones or fancy equipment or stuff like that because I was like, this needs to be, this is still like a critical thinking task. So, and I, yeah. I also don't like to get too wrapped up in having the fanciest gadget too. I try to be... Oh, yeah. Try to stay humble. So, <laughs> well, I, I think that's, I think that's the paradox. The the really interesting, useful paradox these days is that even as technology gets fancier and fancier, it's it's easier to do well with without the fancy stuff. Like you can yeah. take some really good photos and videos with your phone. You know, you you don't you don't always need to to go out and have the the professional yeah. stuff. Yeah, and I thought, I mean, the sound isn't great, but I think it sounds fine. Like, I think it's perfectly acceptable. We might think about it more in the future using microphones. But um, but again, that was like, I, I wanted to keep the focus on the right thing. You know, you've only got so many hours in the classroom that for me, it was much more about how are you going to, you know, research this issue and present this issue? How are, you, how are you going to make this interesting for a wider audience? Yeah, when I started doing some some audio, some screencasting assignments here at my school, I, I had the library buy five USB headset mics, just very cheap $15 mm-hmm. thing. And um, and I tell people every semester, okay, they're there just for you. They're in the box. They're on reserve. You can check them out. And I think almost no one ever does because of what you said. Because I there's always the well, you know, you can just use that microphone on your your like iPhone headphones. You know, you can just yeah. use the microphone that's built into your laptop or your iPad or something. And almost always that's enough. I usually, yeah. I, I usually get a little worried. Like, okay, I'm going to have to talk so much about just how to get it recorded. But I kind of, I talk a little bit. I model it for ten minutes in class. I give them a resource on how to do it, and I say asking questions. And I, I don't usually answer a lot of questions on the on the tech side. Usually, people, even the ones who I who I kind of suspect won't be able to. I know that sounds bad, <laughs> but you know, like the ones who are who have been terrified yeah. about computers the whole time. They they can do this too. Do you want to introduce anything else about the the excerpt we're about to hear? Yeah, this is um, Vincent Salazar and Kaylee Stankis. They are two students who are freshmen this year in the Cortina community, and they are talking about pay inequality. And I thought I picked this clip because they both have really cool personalities, um, very bright, very engaged, very energetic students. And it really came out in the podcast. I think that sometimes I worry that you have this really cool student and then you're like, how come your writing does not match up to how you are in my classroom? And I think that this podcast really, it feels like they're real voices. Like it feels like their real personalities are coming through um, while they're talking about this very, you know, very serious social justice issue of pay inequality um, for men and women. So, so yeah, I hope your listeners enjoy it. <laughs> I'm sure they will. I'm really excited. <laughs> that was Faith Kurtika from Creighton University. So now let's hear part of The American System and Pay Inequality, the podcast by Vincent Salazar and Kaylee Stankus, both students at Creighton University, who graciously gave their permission to play this excerpt. Hey there, Creighton University. I'm Vincent Salazar. 
And I'm Kaylee Stankos. And we are talking about the American system and pay inequality. You forgot to introduce this, this segment. And this segment is what would John Cortina do? No, it's part of John Cortina do. What? Part? What? <laughs> what? What is this segment? It's part of what would John Cortina do, but this segment is on the American system and pay inequality. Oh. This, what? <laughs> okay. <laughs> On this segment of What Would John Cortina Do, we'll be talking about the American system and pay inequality. We'll be talking about pay inequality with respect to gender, class status, and race. Sarah Perron. She is um, my formation group leader. And, and she we... is my friend. Can you... <laughs> Shut up, she's my friend. We're both friends. Okay. You and me, and me and Sarah, and you and Sarah, we're, we're like a friend triangle. <laughs> <laughs> we getting, are a triangle of friends. I'm getting passionate about this subject. I'm not. <laughs> Yay, gender. Oh, hey, Sarah, how are you? I'm great, how are you? Yeah, so from what you've seen in the workforce, work field, work field. Workforce. Workforce or workforce, work field? Workforce is the word you're looking for. Really? Yes. And what's the work field versus Something workforce? Something you made up right now. <laughs> so the word is workforce. <laughs> okay. This is going so well. <laughs> okay. So from what you can see in the workforce, what do you think has caused this income inequality, especially with respect to the gender gap? Well, I think with the gender gap, it's not... It's not new. So it's the causes are the same causes they were when women first entered the workforce. The problem is that it's an old problem and we live in a modern world where women are just as qualified and they work just as hard in the same jobs and it, we're we're a society that has moved hasn't moved past these problems but has said it has. So it's not that there are new causes, it's not that we're yanking pay from women, it's that we never gave it to them in the first place. Now, would you say this is more of a systematic problem or more of like an individual company problem? Yeah, I would definitely say it's a systematic problem. Just, I mean, and that's evidence just because women across the board in every field are making 77 cents to the dollar. It's not just in business. It's not just in music. It's across the board. Um, that's not a coincidence. How do you think people, like people themselves and the government, how do you think they can get involved to like end the pay gap to, you know, help get rid of well, the Lowly Ledbetter Act is was introduced by Lowly Ledbetter, of all people, um, and it's a a bill that Obama supports and that um, a lot. I mean, a lot of politicians support that everyone should support because it's an act that ensures fair pay for women um, in all fields and uh, and and punishment for people who don't. And so that's. I mean, that's something the government is doing. Um, and something you can certainly write to politicians and everybody to support. Um, and it's easy to look up. Lily Ledbetter is a super cool chick. So. <laughs> super rad. I would say so. <laughs> so with, the, uh, with respect to the gender gap, we, um, I've discovered the New York Times had an article. So what they came to the conclusion is that women are not paid less because they have jobs that pay less naturally, like a McDonald's worker versus a CEO. But instead, That's kind of drastic. Well, 
like uh, an engineer versus a secretary at the engineering company. There we go. It's not that difference. There's a difference between two engineers, one being a female, one being a male, and the male gets paid more than his female. And the male gets paid... (laughs) And the male is being paid more than his female counterpart. Contemporary. I think I used the wrong word. Contemporary. The article is written by. You want to do all the talking? (laughs) This is my article. Okay, okay, okay. According to Claire Kane Miller, who wrote the article, Pay Gap is Because of Gender Not Jobs, for the New York Times, she said. Actually, the biggest difference in income widens at the highest paying jobs, such as business, law, and medicine. And according to the data from Claudia Golden, a Harvard University, the problem is in higher paying jobs versus lower paying jobs. And so this is important because most people at Creighton are seeking to become doctors. Yes. Lawyers. Yes. What's the other one? Dentists. Yes. And pharmacists, but actually yes. pharmacists have the highest, besides chemists, dental hygienists, HR specialists, and advertising salespeople, pharmacists have the, um, women get paid just as much as men, or as close to, 91% of what men make, which is a lot better versus, like, um... Surgeons who only get 71%. Wow. So ladies, become a pharmacist, not a surgeon. Or become a surgeon, get in the system, and change the system from within. Or become a pharmacist. Or become a pharmacist. Yep. Actually, you get better hours. You get too. better hours, better pay. Not for a drug connection. No. No. Just yes. for. Next article. <laughs> <laughs> okay, what's the thing we talked about? Um, next, we go to a scholarly article on wage discrimination based on gender and race, written by author Angela Kennedy. <laughs> So it was written by a woman. Basically, this article discusses why a pay gap still exists despite the different civil rights acts used to equalize pay between genders. It also talks about the reasons why women make up to 16.2 cents less than men, which in the long run could be a lot of money. That's a lie if you work like 100 hours a year. But it still counts because 16.2 cents less an hour times 100 but that's a big understatement. That's less than a month's worth of work. Anyway, it also brings up the topic that even though women are more prevalent in today's workforce, so even though people are hiring more women than they used to, women still suffer from wage discrimination. How's that? How's it feel to make more money, Vinny? Awesome. <laughs> That was The American System and Pay Inequality by Vincent Salazar and Kaylee Stankus. You can hear the rest of their piece at the Cortina Communities blog. Just go to cortinacommunity.org. That's C-O-R-T-I-N-A, like Tina with core in front of it, community.org. And look for a post that was posted on March 24th, 2015. It's called Cortina Podcast Now Live. There's descriptions of all of the student podcasts there and a link to where you can go listen to them on SoundCloud. So from there, let's move into... Part two, the week in review assignment. I know that for me, when I hear people explaining what they do with sound in the classroom, it makes me want to hear more and more ideas. It makes me think one of my favorite authors, Ursula K. Le Guin, in this novel called The Dispossessed, she writes, It is of the nature of ideas to be communicated, written, spoken, done. 
the idea is like grass. It craves light. It likes crowds. It thrives on crossbreeding. It grows better for being stepped on. I like to think of sounds and pedagogies as grass-like in that way, if that makes sense at all. But if that's true, I have a meadow for you. In 2012, in issue 16.2 of Kairos, a journal of rhetoric, technology, and pedagogy, which is free online, Jennifer L. Bowie published two complementary pieces on podcast pedagogy. One was called um, Podcasting and a Writing Class, Considering the Possibilities, and one was called Rhetorical Roots and Media Future, How Podcasting Fits into the Computers and Writing Classroom. Sounds pretty perfect for this show, right? They're both full of scholarship and reflection and gazillions of ideas and resources for the classroom. And best yet, they're presented as multimodal web texts that include a series of podcast episodes, 13 total between the two articles, if I added that right. And they're both fully transcribed. So that means I can put Bowie's work on my phone and I can listen to the car or while I'm doing dishes, which I think is amazing. Her podcast episodes are also licensed by Creative Commons, which means I can legally share an excerpt here with you. You can go listen to most of it by yourself. So I'll just give you a little snippet from episode four. It's called Podcast Assignments 2, Media and Message Assignments, which is from the Podcasting and a Writing Class article. So here's Jennifer L. Bowie. Without further ado, let us begin episode four, Podcast Assignments 2, Media and Message Assignments. Week in Review. My favorite podcast assignment is the Week in Review podcast, as I've received some of the strongest student podcasts as a response to this assignment. Students in my senior seminar and in my undergraduate electronic writing and publishing classes have completed this project, and I plan to incorporate it into future classes. Depending on size and length, I recommend having this be a smaller team collaboration. Two students worked well for me. Since my classes tend to have limited lecture time and are mostly discussion, a lecture in a box, podcast of the actual class would be hard. So instead, the students produced weekly review podcasts, which they posted on iTunes University. Each team was responsible for covering one week of class. In these reviews, they provide a summary of the content of the class, a reflection on the material covered, including the readings, key points for the week, thoughts on what they learned and what they plan to do with it, and additional resources relevant to the topic. In my senior seminar, they designed the assignment as a class. They also chose to require both students to speak on the podcast, a relevant quote, and some connection from the material covered that week to something outside the class. They also set the time to be approximately 15 minutes with a range of plus or minus two and a half minutes. Other than these requirements, I allowed students to design the podcast however they want, choose their own pod-safe music, which is music with correct permissions to be used in podcasts, album art, arrangement, and so on. If due to class length or number of students, there are weeks not covered by students, the teacher could cover the remaining weeks. This would be a way to connect with the students and even could work to decenter the classroom as some student-produced Week in Review podcasts may be stronger or at least more interesting to the audience, the students, than what the teachers produce. My main goal for this assignment is community building and collaborative knowledge development. Since the class is the audience for these, I encourage students to use the Week in Review podcast to connect the material to their classmates. While the assignment focuses on providing information, students also use these as a way to entertain their peers, providing music they like, 
odd accents, jokes, nicknames, and more. I also like to encourage them to draw on the discussions of the week, and students will often quote each other's reading responses, tweets, and comments made in class. The students become responsible for their peers' understanding of what was covered that week, and they find unique ways to make the knowledge more applicable and interesting. In addition, I encourage students to develop their understanding and applications of ethos, tone, style, summary, analysis, and critique through this project. In the associated web text, I provided a sample assignment description. In my classes, these weekend review podcasts are often considered medium-sized projects. They take much more time than the reading responses in smaller projects, but do not take the effort I would expect for a final project. In advanced classes, these projects are nice because the students need minimal additional training, beyond training on how to do a podcast. So I can start assigning them within a few weeks of the start of class. Empirically, students find this podcast assignment to aid in their development of knowledge and skills. Overall, students thought the week in review contributed to their understanding and application of electronic writing and publishing, giving it a four point three of five. Of the remaining eighteen knowledge and skills, the average student scores were four or higher for thirteen of them, including audience, purpose, tone, context, critique, and analysis. I will put a table with this information up on the web text page for this episode. So you can see how all 19 skills were rated. You can connect with Dr. Jennifer L. Bowie on Twitter at star, but it's star with a S T A R R E, like star or something like that. And you can check out more of her work at screenspace.org. Before we dive into part three, let me think out loud here for a minute. After I checked out Bowie's two pieces in Kairos, I wanted to know what else was out there on podcast pedagogy, and of course, we're going to hear some of that in part three from Truman.、Um, but let me let me do a little thinking on my own first. I, I mean, in in Bowie's piece, she outright says that there isn't a lot of work out there on student podcasting; that a lot of the work is、uh, from instructors podcasting for their students. So. I just wanted to really casually do an informal search just to see what was there. So I went to my library's online databases and I, I just typed "podcast pedagogy" and I checked the full text box. And I I know I know it's not always a good idea to check that box right away, but you know whatever. So as, as I skimmed the first couple of results, my emotions were kind of going back and forth. So I want to I want to、um, think that through out loud with you here. So so first I skimmed、um, Laura Ewing's piece in Pedagogy, you know the journal just called Pedagogy, and her piece is called "Rhetorically Analyzing Composition Spaces." And I、um, skimmed it, and I control F'd looking for the word podcast to see what she was saying about podcast specifically. And what she describes in the context of this larger piece is a pretty cool and simple way of integrating podcasts into an online composition class. She had students analyze their online personas, and can I just add? By the way, I I like saying personas better than personae or personae or however you say it. it it's kind of like how I dodge. Deciding whether I say alumnae or alumnus or alumna, I just say alum and make it easy. Okay, so so students analyzed their online personas and they recorded this two to five minute audio recording explaining what they found. I think it was pretty smart of Ewing to ask them to speak out loud something that would probably be able to naturally speak out loud well. She's using their natural affordances and the affordances of speech. But after I read the assignment in the context of her larger piece, I thought, man, I really want to see even a more rigorous study of student podcast use—a piece specifically about that, not just as one cog in the wheel, as the way、um, Ewing is using it.、Um, so I, I wanted to even know things like: did the students like it? Did it help the class? Did it?、Um, 
Did it help fulfill the outcomes? I wanted to see a more uh, rigorous piece of, of, of scholarship. And I, I mean rigorous in the sense of more of a formal study. So, so I kept scrolling through the database, and I thought I would have that piece when I saw one um, in a journal called Educational Technology and Society. And the, the piece is called Using Podcasting to Facilitate Student Learning, a Constructivist Perspective. I'll, I'll, I'll give you a link in the show notes. But, but then right away, even though I was wanting something a little more formal, as I read the abstract, something felt off to me. So let me, let me read the last line from the abstract. It says, The paper concludes that podcasts facilitate learning when tightly coupled to a curriculum and used within constructivist learning environments. So I, that's almost like saying, if you're a good teacher and do it right, podcasts can work. So, so I thought maybe I'm not being fair. So I skimmed on. And you know, I don't know, the passive voice of this genre of study made it kind of hard to figure out who was making the podcast. There was all this podcasts were used, podcasts were used over and over. Um, I finally did see that, yes, some students did actually make podcasts in this study. Um, but, you know, podcasts were always used. They were never listened to by anyone, which is kind of weird, right? I mean, I don't feel like I'm using something when I listen to audio. Okay, I'm showing my disciplinary bias here, but here's, here's why I'm rambling on about this. I'm starting to think about what kind of work actually helps me be a better teacher, which is, of course, making me think about my situatedness in relationship to research in general. And I can't help but feel that Ewing's piece in pedagogy would help me just as much as longer, more formal study in educational technology and society. I mean, I'm going to adapt any ideas to my own classroom anyway, right? So sometimes what I really need are just the ideas, something to spur my own invention, a heuristic, a brainstorming tool to make me say, oh, yeah, 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 connecting audio to online personas. That's exactly right. That feels more useful to me than stopping to say, wait, to what extent do I have a constructivist classroom? I, I want to leave it there before I manage to insult other major swaths of social science research or show my own ignorance about the awesomeness of how other fields do stuff. But let me add this. Somehow, um, Stephen Krause's article, Broadcast Composition, in an old issue of Computers and Composition Online, it feels a little more like the kind of useful work that I think we need more of. By old, I mean it's 2006, which is, I mean, pretty cutting edge if you consider the word podcast had just been coined in 2004. But here's what I like about Krause's piece. One, He's more careful than almost anyone else I've read about distinguishing between podcasts as a serial medium and other audio pieces that students could make. Two, he makes a case for the importance of podcasting at that chirotic moment in 2006 by simply linking to a ton of articles on the importance of podcasting, which, I mean, they're not as useful today as they were then since they're old. But if I had been teaching in 2006, I think I would have eaten those articles up. I would have um, used that popular writing about podcasting to inform my teaching to inform my scholarship right I, I think i think when i'm devising what i should do in the classroom it's the mix of everything i'm reading together not just scholarship that is informing what i do three uh, krause is also super specific about what exactly he did in class how exactly he asked students to use the technology including the tutorials he gave them things like that he includes a lot of honest reflection too so it seems to me like that's often the kind of work that helps me be a better teacher something that's thorough detailed resource-heavy, and inspires my own ideas. So that's a pretty good transition to part three, more scholarship, more ideas, more Truman.
That's right. We're going to hear from Ryan Truman from Columbia College, Chicago, and the owner of the prodigiously amazing newmediascholar.net. He's going to walk us through some of the best scholarship on podcasting in the writing classroom, including Bowie's piece that we heard of in part two. Whether you're thinking about assigning podcasts as discussion texts, producing your own as additional classroom resources, or having your students produce their own podcasts, this set of articles should be helpful. More fields, more grass to walk across, more thriving. Here's Truman. I've been listening to podcasts for almost a decade now, pretty much as long as they've been around. In a lot of ways, I've consumed them for the same reasons I consume other media. I've always found them to be a great way to be exposed to other people and cultures, to listen to stories, uh, to become more familiar with social, cultural, and political discussions. They can be, in their turn, funny, tragic, instructional, motivating, and illuminating. In short, I've come to understand podcasts as rich cultural texts capable of doing work just as important as other types of media. And the more that I've, I've come to understand the process of how podcasts are produced, the more clearly I understand them as written texts. Even though they circulate as primarily audio texts, most of them have at their core written texts and writing practices of all sorts. These are some of the reasons I've spent the last few years incorporating audio assignments into my writing pedagogy. I'll admit that when I first started, my classroom practices didn't really respond to any composition scholarship related directly to podcasting. Instead, I was motivated more generally to incorporate multimodal composing practices in my classes. And for a variety of reasons, audio texts are what I experimented with first. Luckily, I've since found a multitude of texts focusing directly on the pedagogical affordances of podcasting in our writing classrooms. What I want to offer you is a set of five articles which I think represent some of the best and most accessible scholarship on the subject. I think of it as a starter set. You won't likely find all of them to be relevant to your own interests and practices, but there will likely be at least a couple. Part of the idea is that each of these articles represents a different way of approaching podcasting in our classrooms. If one of them interests you, you'll almost definitely find that there are lots more articles participating in the same discussion. And before I get started, I, I want to note that for each article, I'll start by giving you the author's name, the title of the article, and where and when it was published. I'll follow that with a brief summary and discussion of the article. Then I'll move to the next. So, let's begin. Jennifer L. Bowie. Rhetorical Roots and Media Future. How Podcasting Fits into the Computers and Writing Classroom. Which appears in a 2012 issue of Kairos, a journal of rhetoric, technology, and pedagogy. I really didn't want this list to become a ranking of what I see as the five most important texts related to podcasts, mostly because instructors have such a variety of interests and pedagogies that an article important to one person won't necessarily be quite as important to the next person. I decided alphabetical order. Yep, that'd be the least suggestive. 
Well, that being said, however, I, uh, I don't think there's much argument that Jennifer Bowie's 2012 Kairos article is essential reading for this subject. She writes, quote, As I contend here, what may be achieved in the oral and aural domains cannot always easily be achieved through more traditional writing. But once achieved, students may and often do apply it to other forms of writing and become better writers in a variety of media. Unquote. Bowie argues that there are myriad ways that podcasting can be put to effective use in the writing classroom, and she offers plenty of scholarship and studies to support her position. She cites studies that suggest podcasts can foster higher student achievement and a sense of community in the classroom. She also carefully situates how podcasts can offer new or alternative approaches to discussions of the traditional five canons. And Bowie is careful to actually enact what she's arguing for. She not only structures her text as seven episodes in a podcast series, but she provides comprehensive written annotations and links to resources in her notes within her Kairos text itself. Additionally, the same issue of Kairos includes a companion article, also written by her, which offers an amazing discussion of practical approaches to actually incorporating podcasts into your classroom. What I like most about Bowie's article is, is the fact that she actually enacts the mode she's arguing for. And by doing so, she doubles down on the efficacy of podcasting. And at the same time, she makes her text into something any of us could actually include in our course readings as a way of demonstrating just how possible it is to use podcasting as a mode of scholarly work. Norm Friesen, The Lecture as a Transmedial Pedagogical Form, a Historical Analysis, which appears in a 2011 issue of Educational Researcher. I'll be the first one to admit that this article is not ostensibly about podcasting, nor, nor is it really about writing and rhetoric pedagogy. Nope, I've included it here as a way of contextualizing the educational podcast within the long history of the academic lecture. That is, it is becoming more common for instructors to produce podcasts as supplementary to their face-to-face -face lectures. And in some cases, especially in online learning contexts, podcasts are even taking the place of lectures. It's important to understand how academic lectures have functioned and evolved over the last several centuries as we begin to consider the possibilities for alternative pedagogical modes. Friesen writes that, quote, the lecture, I argue, is most effectively understood as bridging oral communication with writing rather than as being a purely spoken form that is superseded by textual, digital, or other media technologies and other mediatic forms as they have co-evolved, unquote. The primary argument of Friesen's text is that face-to-face -face lectures have played an important pedagogical role in Western culture for more than 800 years. And while the function of the lecture has morphed several times over that period, its potential and viability in our classrooms hasn't diminished. 
Friesen's history of the lecture begins somewhere in the Middle Ages, before the advent of the printing press. Lectures functioned primarily as a way of sharing a single text among many students. A lecturer simply read the text aloud. Friesen argues that despite the changes that it has undergone, the lecture has always been about mediating between spoken and textual communication. That is, the function of lectures has always been to allow an instructor to speak about texts. While early lectures offered the simple oral transmission of a text, changes in presentation technologies have had enormous impacts on how lectures function. Chalkboards, overhead projectors, audio and video recordings, they've all had significant impacts on how lectures are delivered, documented, and consumed. We should embrace and explore all sorts of emerging presentation technologies in order to allow the lecture to continue to reinvent itself in response to changing educational and technological landscapes. Friesen's article will likely be most useful to those instructors considering podcasts as supplementary lecture materials or even as a replacement for face-to-face lectures in the context of online learning. For me, the particular strength of his article is that Friesen takes on an historical approach to his analysis of the academic lecture. This strategy undermines the idea of the lecture as a static mode of teaching. It demonstrates instead that the function of lectures has always been in flux. It only makes sense that we question how the lecture is going to continue to change rather than whether or not it actually will. Kathleen Gray, Celia Thompson, Rosemary Clarahan, Judith Shared, and Margaret Hamilton. Web 2.0 Authorship, Issues of Referencing and Citation for Academic Integrity, which appears in a 2008 issue of the internet, and higher education. As writing instructors, most of us are pretty comfortable with quotation, citation, and other reference practices as they relate to traditional non-digital print texts. However, as texts have become increasingly digital, these practices have become unstable and unpredictable. New textual genres are emerging all the time. Texts continue to incorporate new forms of media, and the networks and interfaces through which we access these texts grow more complex every day. In their article on Web 2.0 authorship, Gray, Thompson, Clarahan, Shared, and Hamilton offer a clear and highly functional approach to discussing the challenges of referencing and citation practices within contemporary composition classrooms. They write that, quote, From this overview of the features of widely available Web 2.0 authoring tools, it is clear that if scholarly communication is to embrace or simply to keep pace with them, changes are required in the way that textual authorship and publication are formally understood and represented in academic codes of practice, unquote. This is another entry on this list that doesn't directly address podcasting as its primary focus. Instead, these authors convincingly argue that current citation and referencing practices inadequately support contemporary digital composition practices. 
And they call for publishers and professional organizations to address these shortcomings by developing clearly articulated and updated reference conventions. This article doesn't offer much in the way of specific citation practices within the audio components of podcasts, but that's not really the author's intention. What they do offer are some fantastic approaches to understanding the changing nature of scholarly practices in a networked academic community. They also suggest some strategies for applying that understanding toward citing Web 2.0 texts and employing citations within those types of texts. I think what I like best about this article are the two tables the authors have included. They're absolutely fantastic. The first is a set of examples of actual references to Web 2.0 texts taken from contemporary scholarship. The second table presents a list of citation formats suggested by some major scholarly style guides for referencing Web 2.0 texts. Lee A. Jones, Podcasting and Performativity, Multimodal Invention in an Advanced Writing Class, which appears in a 2010 issue of Composition Studies. Lee Jones's article is a bit different from the others on this list in a couple of ways. First, she's the only author in this group who overtly positions herself as a novice. Now, she readily admits that she approached the idea of incorporating podcasts into her writing classroom as, quote, an instructor who is not entirely at ease with technology, unquote. She reveals that she took it upon herself to learn the basics of producing a podcast and found the mode to be quite accessible. It's an ethos which fosters a disarming tone, likely to appeal to her like-minded, less digitally savvy fellow scholars. The other differenti differentiating aspect of Jones' article is that she focuses more on the invention process than the other articles. She asked students to use podcasting as a way of trying out different ethos and to explore their own sense of authority. She writes, quote, Performance allows one to pass through a variety of roles. This act of inhabiting new spaces in the context of a writing class can allow students to try on authority in a productive way, as in the context of the podcasting assignment. And through doing so, students learn to use ethos to imagine their relationship to their audience and to appreciate the construction of knowledge through writing in new ways. Unquote. Jones' primary argument is that, despite various issues related to access, podcasting can be an effective component of the writing process, especially as it relates to invention strategies. This is due in part to the fact that it incorporates technologies lots of students already use in their everyday lives. Additionally, however, Jones stresses that the performative nature of podcasting fosters in students a willingness to take risks, a tendency to invest in the classroom as a community, and to experiment more with performing authority and other types of ethos. Her article will likely be most relevant to fellow instructors who are looking for concrete examples of how one instructor 
relatively inexperienced with digital production technologies, actually put these ideas into practice in her own classroom. She even includes, as an appendix to the article, a thorough assignment description and schedule. Alex Reed, Portable Composition, iTunes University, and Networked Pedagogy, which appears in a 2008 issue of Computers and Composition. In this article, Reed reflects on his own university's initiative to incorporate iTunes University into their local programs focused on writing and new media composition. He inflects his analysis through discussions of convergent media, actor network theory, functional and critical literacies, as well as new media composition and questions of authorship. He writes, quote, The implementation of mobile networks will need to be understood through tracing a network of local interactions. If one wishes to understand how larger cultural ideological forces come to play in such scenes or investigate the local compositional practices of students, one will need to follow this network. To engage in this study, it will be necessary to abandon many habits as one enters into novel assemblages, particularly our habits regarding authorship. Unquote. This quotation can be understood as a summation of Reed's conclusions about his own experiences with iTunes University at his local institution. But he also offers something possibly more valuable to us as scholars considering whether or not to incorporate podcasting into our own classrooms. While he's careful to limit the scope of his analysis to a particular site, his conclusions seem highly relevant to any institutional approaches to podcasting within a writing or new media curriculum. He manages to frame specific, concrete experiences within highly theoretical discussions. And, as always, his prose is beautiful. Reed's article will likely be especially helpful to instructors who are themselves attempting to build a theoretical framework for including podcasts in individual classrooms or even at a curricular level. His focus on local networks of actors and resources, the ideologies inherent within those networks, and their possible effect on students' notions of authorship make for a great analytical framework on which other scholars and or teachers might base their own. That was Ryan Truman, who tweets at Truman. That's T-R-A-U-M-A-N. Check out his work and resources at newmediascholar.net. I'm not just like joking or just saying that. I mean, actually go check it out. I'll wait. Okay. So with that, we're at the end of the episode. Plugs Play Pedagogy is written and produced by me, Kyle Stedman from Rockford University. Contact me with show ideas on Twitter at KStedman or at plugsplaypedagogy at writingcommons.com. Org. I like help and I like friends. This episode, unlike my previous ones, is licensed by a Creative Commons attribution, non-commercial share alike license, which means you can happily share it as long as you give me credit, don't make any money off of it, and license any derivative works with the same license. If you're wondering, that's because that's the license that Jennifer Bowie's piece uses. So to legally use it, I have to make sure that I honor the share alike license of her piece and continue to share alike in the same way. So that so her piece will never get locked down in any sort of way if anyone makes a derivative work based on her work or mine or anyone else who uses it. 
My theme music from the beginning of the episode is by Cactus May, a graduate student at Ohio University. And the rest of the music you heard was from the free video game remixes available at Overclocked Remix. That's ocremix.org. I'll give names and links to specific tracks in my show notes. I'm recording in Rockford, Illinois, in a 99-year-old house where at least one person died and at least one person got married over the years. It's June, and the windows are open. At least they are when I'm not recording. This is Plugs Play Pedagogy. Pedagogy.